cannabis topics in less than 10 minutes. Let's go. What's up, guys? Welcome back to an episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Matt Zorn, partner at Yetter Coleman. Matt, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? How are you, guys? Um, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Patience, was there something that triggered you that said, hey, like, there's something here. We need to fight back against, like, bigger organizations like the DEA. Like, take us through that thought process. So, again, when I was listening to Dr. Sisley's problem, I wasn't acutely aware of her specific problem. However, sort of eight or eight years prior to that, I had studied this and I was like, well, this is just a mess. So I broadly knew that this was a mess. And, and I don't mean that from a war on drugs or like racism standpoint, although certainly that that's true. I meant it more of just like the legal sort of frameworks were just in, a, in chaos and just like what DA was doing was unlawful. Um, now, Dr. Sisley introduced me to a very specific problem but what that also sort of opened my eyes to was that there was also a almost a bigger problem, which was the DEA was doing all of these unlawful things, and there was no nobody there to say, "Hey, this is wrong." And there were no like you know there were no lawyers willing to sue them. There were no companies willing to sue them, even though everyone knew that this was wrong. And so that was a, um, it's, it's this space is, is a very different one from like other regulated spaces. If the EPA steps on the energy industry, the energy industry claps back with high paid lawyers and says, you know, this is unlawful. And then you go to court and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But that type of behavior creates this, um, creates a dynamic where like the regulator isn't just stomping all over the regulated. There's their boundaries, right? You do not have that in this controlled substances space. So when you're having the conversations with the DEA or the FDA, with other lawmakers about these type of, of topics, are they dismissive of your response? Are they accepting and saying, hey, this is not how it works? Like, what is, how does that work? Oh, well, the, the DEA doesn't want to hear. I mean, the, the DEA, I mean, what underlies sort of schedule one to this, to this day is interpreting the words currently accepted medical use to basically mean FDA approval. It's this five-part test that is safety, efficacy, well-recognized by expert. Basically, everything you would have to do to get approval of a drug from the FDA is how they interpret the phrase. I'm in court right now kind of trying to, you know, do, and, and they're not bending. And I don't think the FDA will either. I mean, the FDA is very much used to a pure pharmaceutical model and at least outwardly hostile to cannabis. Like look look at what they just did with sort of the CBD regulation. They just punted and then said like, well, CBD hasn't been approved. And so that's where we are. So I don't think there's a friendly audience in government to to these types of arguments, or at least not yet. I don't see any bending on the federal government on this issue. So true or false, the DEA is an agency. True. DEA is an agency. Do you want to elaborate a little bit? I assume you're talking about the lawsuit I'm involved in where I am saying the DA is an agency and the government's saying it's not an agency. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I give you the technical legal arguments. I mean, I think everyone would think something that has a billion billions of dollars in appropriations headed by an administrator and has, you know, 
tons of employees in like different cities and different countries as an agency. It seems odd that it wouldn't be, but what the Department of Justice is saying is that, well, the DEA is a component of DOJ and therefore is not an agency. You know, I, I don't comment on pending litigation usually. So I'm not really saying anything beyond what's in the briefs, but I hope the court reaches a, you know, reaches a decision in my favor, but I'm sure it will review the arguments and figure out which one is correct. So in your opinion, which event happens first? And if you could put these in an order, the removal of 280E, federal legalization, or interstate commerce? Well, the interstate commerce thing is, is I don't know, it's kind of a questionable thing. It's, it's never been clear to me why people are sort of think there's no interstate commerce. Although I will say that there's an interesting kind of, if it gets rescheduled, there's an interesting sort of idea of, well, it's not FDA approved. So the FDA's jurisdiction is interstate, right? And it has liberally interpreted what it means to be interstate. It just means if one ingredient passes from one state to another. But you could you could theoretically operate a cannabis cafe that was entirely interstate and therefore outside the jurisdiction of the FDA. Entirely, right? You just, you grow on site, you buy your joint, you smoke it on site, you know, it's a little bit of the Amsterdam model. You could do that and it would be outside the FDA's jurisdiction. I think that's actually entirely possible and it would be kind of cool. But certainly the Controlled Substances Act isn't, isn't important. Like there's something in the CSA that says like you can't go like interstate or whatever. And I'm not really sure where that came from. Maybe, maybe I missed something, but um, I think the 280 E is going to be the first thing to give. I, I, I think that I know that the president has under, you know, there's a, a scheduling review that is is happening, and I think cannabis is going to be rescheduled. And if it gets put in three or below, then the 280 problem just completely disappears. What's your guess? Give me three or below. I don't think they're going to leave it. I don't think so. I think the industry is too big right now. They got to do something. And it, cause I, it I, could it could fail. I mean, the industry could fail. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> if you see some of these oh, numbers, like yeah. the way we're continuing, it is not good. And I think. The one thing that no one really wants to speak about is sure, MSOs are the ones that benefit, but they're also the ones where if they go down, it will be a catastrophic kind of ripple effect because they are the core infrastructure in some of those states for medicinal and for recreational. So lightly switching gears, are we facing a potential IP battle in psychedelics or in cannabis space, let's say now or in the future? I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of the IP in psychedelics is directed to the FDA drug development process, which is kind of its own sort of species of it's like farm that's more pharma oriented. Yeah, I don't I don't see any IP battle. I mean, I don't in cannabis there hasn't really been that much. Um and I guess the question, right, is in the moment this all becomes legalized, is there going to be like a bunch of IP wars? I don't know. It's an interesting question. I mean, you know, there's so many different varietals of cannabis and the smoking cannabis has been around forever. It just seems kind of like, I don't know, it doesn't doesn't seem like there's going to be IP battles, but maybe there's something I don't know about. I mean, not, not any more than any other industry, right? Like, you know, you don't see IP battles in the tomato industry, for example. So it's not saying that people won't have patents and they won't be infringed. I'm sure there's going to be like, you know, certain manufacturing techniques or whatever. It's not going to be like, so Matt, before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? I think the biggest thing, the biggest contributor to my success, uh, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, is I, I trained to become a lawyer, not a cannabis lawyer, not a psychedelics lawyer. I just learned how to practice law. I learned basic skills like reading, writing, 
thinking critically, like, you know, but as a lawyer, like as a lawyer, and I trained to become an IP lawyer, and I trained on like, big high stakes commercial cases. And I, I've developed my deposition skills, I, I, I became a good lawyer before I ever moved into this space with any sort of seriousness. And I think I became a better lawyer in this space for that because those skills, they're the same skills you would need to take to anything. And in fact, like the area of law, I end up applying the most. I mean, sure, I deal with the Controlled Substances Act a lot, but it's really administrative law. And there's tons of administrative law out there. And so I think that the, the advice I would give is a recommendation is think sort of broadly and think about skill, developing skills as opposed to substantive knowledge about, you know, the industry or whatever, which is important. But, you know, if you want to be a lawyer, learn how to do the law and learn it sort of in a more general sense and then kind of drill down. And I think a lot of folks nowadays are kind of jumping right into cannabis law. I think that's one way you can do it, but it's uh, not the way I did it. And I'm glad I didn't do it that way. Great advice. All right. Prediction time. Matt, hindsight is 2020. If you could go back and do things differently, what would you do to alleviate the issues to set up the cannabis industry to thrive? I think that one one of the things I would do is I would have I would have made a harder push on medical a little bit sooner at the federal level. I think that the recreational was and still is going to be a hard sell, and I think that really focusing on medical at the federal level could have basically helped take down a lot of the barriers that REC is even facing right now. The medical narrative just works a lot better. So Matt, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to read On Drugs and potentially have you represent them. Where can they find you? So I write at ondrugs.substack.com. And if someone is looking for representation, I'm an okay lawyer. I've had had some pretty good successes. Um, I I practice at Yutter Pullman. My email is mzorn at yutterpullman.com. And um, I do IP litigation, but I also do contract litigation. I do basically any type of business litigation. I know how to do it. And um, I'm pretty good, especially when I'm against the government. Talking up those W's. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. This was fun, Matt. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.